Welcome to Welcome to the Cancer Care Connect workshop. At this time, all participants are in a listen-only mode. During the workshop, you will hear from our panel of expert speakers. We'll allow time for questions and comments following the presentation. Instructions will be given at that time. If anyone should require assistance during the workshop, please press star then zero on your touchtone telephone. As a reminder, this workshop is being recorded. I would now like to introduce your moderator for today's workshop, Dr. Carolyn Messner, Director of Education and Training at Cancer Care. Please go ahead. Oh, thank you so much, Norma. And I, too, would like to welcome everyone to today's Cancer Care program, New Trends in Renal Cell Cancer. And today's program is a collaborative effort between Cancer Care and many other cancer organizations. And I also want to highlight the Kidney Cancer Association and Kidney Cancer Canada. Um, both of whom have been um, remarkable in helping to spread the word about this program. And actually, I, I want to just let you all know that um, we have lots of you on the call today, and you come from all over the United States, from both urban, rural, and suburban and frontier communities. And we have on the call today over 350 participants, um, and you're those really primarily from the United States, but we also have international participants from Canada, Iraq, Japan, and the United Kingdom, so really um, a bit of a global call. Um, and uh, today's program is made possible um, by a um, uh, today's possible is supported by Bristol Myers Squibb, EMD Serrano, Exolexix Inc., and a grant from Genentech. And I really want to thank them for their support of today's program. Now we have wonderful speakers on our program today, and I want to begin by introducing our first speaker. And our first speaker is Dr. Pavlos Masal, and Dr. Masal is Assistant Professor, Department of Genitourinary Medical Oncology, Division of, of Cancer Medicine, the University of Texas, MD Anderson Cancer Center. And Dr. Masal will be addressing upcoming trends in the treatment of renal cell cancer, standard of care and novel treatment approaches, targeted cancer therapies, and predicting response to treatment. It's now my great pleasure to turn this program over to my esteemed colleague, Dr. Masal. Thank you, Dr. Messner. And um, starting with this overview of um, kidney cancer, I would first um, want to, to highlight that it is not a very uncommon cancer. Um, kidney cancer is the sixth most common cancer among men in the U.S. and the eighth most common cancer among um, women in the U.S. Um, but having said that, um, I do want to highlight that Kidney cancer itself is not a single entity. So the most common type of kidney cancer, I would say about 75% of all cases, um, are under the category of clear cell kidney cancer. And we call it clear cell because the cells look clear under the microscope. But the rest, the other 25% um, of um, kidney cancer cases are under the category of non-clear cell kidney cancer because they're not clear cells. Um, and th uh, under that classification of non-clear cell, there are many different subtypes. You might hear about them or read about them on the internet, like papillary, like chromophobe, renomedullary carcinoma, many different subtypes. And there are nuances in how we treat its subtype. So it's useful to know which subtype you have. Chances are it's going to be clear cell just because it's the most common, but it's not always the case. And talking, you know, since we want to talk about upcoming trends in the treatment of kidney cancer, I do want to highlight that things have changed um, remarkably in the past um, um, decade. So between 1992 to until 2005, there was only one therapy approved by the FDA for the treatment of kidney cancer that has spread um, to other areas, what we call stage four metastatic kidney cancer. And that therapy was what we call high-dose IL-2. That's the name of the therapy. So for all this time, just one therapy until 2005. And from 2005 onwards, we've had an explosion of new therapies, um, which has given us many more options to be able to treat patients with. More than 10 new therapies have been approved just in the last year alone, 2019. We've had two new therapies approved for, for kidney cancer. Now, 
And, and this is why I wanted to clarify about the distinctions between the subtypes. The vast majority of these therapies were tested for clear cell kidney cancer, but we do have some data about their, uh, how these therapies work in, uh, in other kidney cancers as well. So um, when, when it comes to the current um, standard of care, um, I would say that if the kidney cancer has not spread to other areas, meaning it is not stage four, very often um, what we will try to do ideally will be to do surgery to remove um, either part of the kidney or um, the whole kidney and remove the cancer. Um, and after that is done, sometimes there may or may not be a consideration for maybe giving some additional therapy to reduce the chances of the cancer, the kidney cancer coming back. And that's a discussion that you would need to have with your uh, oncologist. Um, if the cancer um, has um, spread to other areas, then there are two broad classes of therapy that um, a person can have. One is what we would call localized therapies, meaning therapies that address a specific area. So a localized therapy would be a surgery, let's say, to remove a cancer in an area that's particularly painful or that it's threatening to break a bone, etc. Radiation would be um, another localized therapy. We'll, we will use radiation to burn away that cancer or um, we can try to, to freeze the tumor or use heat um, against it. And then the other broad class would be what we would call systemic therapies. And those are the therapies that go all over your body to attack the kidney cancer cells that have spread. And so when we talk about this um, category of systemic therapies, in, um, in oncology, I would say, and in kidney cancer in particular, there are three broad classes of um, systemic therapies. So the first one is what we call targeted therapies. These are usually pills, um, and they are therapies that are designed specifically to attack molecules that the kidney cancer um, expresses. And then the second category of systemic therapy is what we call immunotherapy. Um, immunotherapy, the first therapy actually, the one that I mentioned before that was approved in 1992, was one type actually of immunotherapy. So kidney cancer, and especially clear cell kidney cancer, does tend to be sensitive to immunotherapy more often than other cancers. And so with the advent now of new immunotherapies, there has been an explosion of such immunotherapy options for kidney cancer. The newer immunotherapies that have been approved are called immune checkpoint therapies. Um, and then there is the third category that um, is chemotherapy, the classic old chemotherapy that people know about. So I wanted to highlight that because I wanted to say that for clear cell kidney cancer, the most common type of kidney cancer, chemotherapy in the vast majority of cases does not work. So usually what is going to work is targeted therapy or immunotherapy. However, chemotherapy can be the main therapy for other types of kidney cancer. And in those cases, maybe targeted therapy may not work, and it's chemotherapy that you will want to, to use. And that's why it's important that we distinguish um, between the, all of these therapies. Um, and again, I wanted to highlight that immunotherapies, how do they work? They're very different from targeted therapies or from chemotherapy in the sense that immunotherapy works by stimulating our body's immune system to recognize and kill cancer cells. And so that's, that's how they work. And so when it comes to um, upcoming trends a little bit more in the treatment of, of, of kidney cancer, and, uh, and I'll let Dr. Ramamurthy um, mention um, later, you know, clinical trial updates of exciting new things that are coming for, for, for kidney cancer therapy. I would say um, overall, one trend that is important and one field of research that's important is to develop new therapies specifically for the more rare subtypes, the non-clear cell kidney cancer. So that's an area of intense research interest and of clinical trial development. The other um, upcoming trend is to define 
what can we do after we have surgery? So say we have a patient who has had surgery. That patient initially did not have cancer that has spread, so it was not stage four, and has had surgery. And now we're asked with the question, can we do something to minimize the chances that the cancer is going to come back? That scenario, that therapy that we might give is called adjuvant therapy. And so there are a lot of clinical trials happening right now to try and define if there are any adjuvant therapies that are more helpful than others in that setting to minimize the chances that the kidney cancer is ever going to come back. And then there are new target pathways that are being targeted, including there is this um, molecule or pathway called HIF, which um, importantly, this is the pathway that got the Nobel Prize for Medicine and Physiology the, um, this year. So this season's Nobel Prize was given um, because of the development of an understanding of this HIF pathway. And alongside with that understanding, there came new therapies that are in clinical development right now that may be applicable for various kidney cancer. The other upcoming trend would be how do we combine um, therapies in an optimal way to produce better outcomes but with good quality of life and the least amount of toxicity possible. Um, we're, we're trying to, to, to leverage new ways to, to utilize the immune system and new immunotherapies or target the metabolism of the cancer. I know, you know, the whole field of metabolism is, is, is evolving very fast. There's still a lot of aspects that we do not understand, but um, knowledge is growing and trials are being done. Cancer vaccines, um, cell-based therapies, there are articles coming out all of the time. Sometimes, you know, people get uh, a little bit more excited um, than they should about these things because there's a lot of work that needs to happen, but they're, they're there. They're there, and, th and things are certainly happening. There is an explosion of new therapies. Um, and then the last thing that I, I wanted to mention and I was asked to, to discuss was, how can we predict response to therapy? And so I would say number one thing is knowing what kind of kidney cancer you have. So as I mentioned before, there are certain types of kidney cancer um, that will not respond at all to chemotherapy or are very, very unlikely to respond to chemotherapy, and then there are others that will. And then there is, for example a subtype of um, kidney cancer um, that is the one we say with sarcomatoid or rhabdoid change, that's how we call it, that we are now finding out is much more likely to respond to immunotherapy than other um, variants of kidney cancer. So those are important things to know. And the last um, thing that I wanted to mention was um, that there are prognostic scores that we use um, very much for clear cell kidney cancer, but it can be applicable to other types of kidney cancer. And those scores can help us gauge a little bit more um, the prognosis and how, um, think, how well or not well things, uh, things may happen. Um, and one of these scores is the IMDC prognostic score, and the other um, score that is often used is the MSKCC score. So that's um, all I wanted to say for now, and uh, I will uh, leave it to Dr. Ramamurthy to, to, to continue the discussion. Oh, thank you so much, Dr. Massal. That was really excellent, wonderful overview, very outstanding and um, very informative. I know there'll be questions for you during the Q&A. And our next speaker is Dr. Chetham Ramamurthy. Dr. Ramamurthy is a medical oncologist with the Genitourinary Oncology Clinic, Department of Hematology Oncology, Mays Cancer Center at UT Health San Antonio, MD Anderson Cancer Center. And Dr. Ramamurthy is going to address the role of precision medicine clinical trial updates, how research increases your treatment options, tips to manage side effects, symptoms, and pain, and key questions to ask your healthcare team about quality of life concerns. It's really my great pleasure now to turn this program over to my esteemed colleague, Dr. Ramamurthy. Hi, Carolyn. Thank you so much for the introduction, and, and thank you, uh, Dr. Massal, for uh, an excellent uh, discussion about treatments for kidney cancer in this really exciting time where we have a lot more treatment options. Um, so first, I'll talk about the role of precision medicine in kidney cancer. 
And I think the key aspect that Dr. Masal highlighted is that kidney cancer is not one disease, but a group of different cancers that can all arise within the kidney. And so knowing the subtype of kidney cancer, uh, which is a preliminary form of precision medicine, is very important to determining the treatment. Uh, papillary kidney cancers may respond differently to certain treatments than does a clear cell kidney cancer. And apart from subtype, we're also learning about how different mutations in kidney cancer cells may affect uh, how different treatments work. And so in certain circumstances, finding a particular mutation in the cancer cell can inform treatment options. And uh, there are various examples of this, and uh, certain special types of kidney cancer uh, that carry certain mutations may be recommended a completely different treatment than would somebody who does not carry that type of mutation. Uh, in that same vein, certain kidney cancers uh, may be hereditary in nature. Uh, there may be certain mutations that can actually be carried within families and passed down from generation to generation that increase one's risk of developing kidney cancer. And so finding one of those hereditary gene mutations can have an impact not just for the patient who has the kidney cancer, but also their other family members. And so in that way, precision medicine can apply not just to a patient, but also to a patient's family. Uh, in terms of the next topic, which is clinical trial updates and how research increases your treatment options, I really can't highlight enough how crucial a role clinical trials play in cancer treatment and research. Uh, and really, clinical trials uh, are how the field moves forward and how we have been able to develop so many new treatment approaches to kidney cancer over the past 15 years. As Dr. Masal said, there was a long period where there were very few treatment options for advanced kidney cancer, but now uh, we've had an explosion of new treatments, and a lot of that is because of uh, wonderful patients, generous patients participating in trials uh, and helping advance the field. And trials, they can offer new treatment approaches in early-stage disease or provide options where few exist in more advanced disease. Uh, with uh, over 10 new drugs or combinations of drugs approved for the treatment of advanced kidney cancer over uh, the past 10, 15 years, uh, there have been advances in molecularly targeted treatment uh, as well as immunotherapy for kidney cancer. And these advances have led to improvements in how long uh, people with advanced kidney cancer are living uh, and leading to some very long and durable treatment responses as well. To highlight some of the clinical trials that are going on in kidney cancer right now uh, and sort of grouping them together, uh, as Dr. Masal mentioned, we're trying to figure out how to improve the number of people who uh, are cured of kidney cancer uh, in the early stage setting by using uh, treatments like immune therapies uh, before and or after uh, kidney cancer surgery to uh, reduce the risk of recurrence. So that's one uh, group of uh, trials that's ongoing uh, looking uh, at how to improve cure rates in kidney cancer. There are a lot of new molecules uh, and uh, medications that are being investigated to see if they have a role in the treatment of kidney cancer, new types of immune therapies or things that may alter how uh, immune therapies work uh, in conjunction with uh, new medicines uh, in the treatment of kidney cancer. And then, as Dr. Masal mentioned, there are some very specific studies, uh, some of which he runs himself, that uh, look at the rarer subtypes of kidney cancer that may respond very differently to treatments that are currently available. And so are uh, really trying to figure out, uh, based on the type of kidney cancer, uh, whether there are other treatments that may work better. So clinical trials uh, come in many different shapes and forms, uh, and sort of across the spectrum of kidney cancer, uh, 
whether it's early stage disease, more advanced disease, uh, there are trials available and definitely worth investigating uh, if, uh, if you or family member are sort of dealing with that. The next topic that I was going to touch on are tips on managing side effects, symptoms, uh, discomfort, and pain. And uh, the symptoms of kidney cancer really can be many, uh, and often it depends on the stage of the disease uh, and what parts of the body are involved. Uh, kidney cancer is notorious for causing uh, a lot of symptoms uh, that uh, can be difficult to pin down um, and difficult to say that they are specifically due to the cancer itself, but they can cause things like anemia, also uh, cause people to feel tired, issues like fevers and chills, even though you may not have an infection. Uh, typically, the best treatment for cancer-related symptoms is effective treatment of the underlying cancer itself. Uh, and this may involve localized treatments like radiation treatment to painful sites, or it may involve treatment that affects kidney cancer cells throughout the body, uh, like the treatments that we've discussed, uh, targeted therapies or immune therapies uh, that sort of go and affect cancer cells throughout the body. Uh, but the treatments themselves can also have significant side effects, uh, and some of some of the times it can hard to be differentiate hard to differentiate uh, from the symptoms that the cancer can cause itself. Uh, the the medicines, the pill chemotherapies, uh, the targeted treatments that Dr. Masal mentioned, uh, medicines such as pazopinib, axitinib, uh, cabozantinib, lenvatinib. These medicines um, have are in a class of medicines called uh, TKIs, or tyrosine kinase inhibitors, in case you hear that term. And they uh, are associated with fairly similar types of side effects, uh, diarrhea in some people, constipation in others. Uh, medicines like Imodium or Lamotil can be helpful for controlling diarrhea. Other times we may need to use things like stool softeners or laxatives to help uh, with constipation. So that's definitely something to ask your healthcare providers about if you are on one of these medicines. Um, nausea can occur with medicines, and so we have excellent anti-nausea medicines now that can help to control that. And uh, rash, especially one that affects the hand and feet, uh, sometimes called hand-foot syndrome, uh, is something that can happen with these medicines. And a trick for managing this particular side effect is using moisturizing creams, particularly one that I like to recommend is udder cream um, twice daily. Uh, and actually, prevention is the best treatment. So using these creams uh, right when you start the medication can be uh, even better than starting after you develop the symptoms already. And one thing to know is that different people develop different side effects uh, from medicines you process medicines differently. And so a dose that may be right for one person may be totally uh, different for, for another person. And so always important to talk to your healthcare providers about the side effects that you're experiencing uh, so that you can figure out what the right dose of the medicine is. And sometimes treatment breaks are needed in case the uh, medicines are uh, causing too many side effects. So um, the uh, goal of these medicines is to is to help, not to hurt. So uh, sometimes we need to make dose adjustments and things to these medicines uh, through the course of treatment. Um, immune therapies, uh, which are very exciting, uh, can oftentimes not carry a lot of symptoms. Uh, itching is something that's commonly experienced, and so certain creams can be helpful with that, or medicines like Benadryl can also help with itching. Uh, and in rare circumstances, um, but uh, definitely well-known, is that sometimes the immune therapies can, instead of or in addition to uh, causing the immune system to fight the cancer, can also cause the immune system to uh, cause an autoimmune type of reaction where another part of the body can become inflamed. And uh, it's very important that if you develop any new symptoms on immune therapy, uh, because of the unpredictability of things, uh, to let uh, a doctor know uh, immediately because most of the time we can control these, stop the autoimmune reaction uh, by either stopping the medicines or giving some sort of immune calming medicines, 
and uh, that can really nip things in the bud and not let things get too severe. Uh, so uh, certainly important to keep your healthcare team uh, informed about how you're feeling, uh, what types of side effects you're experiencing, uh, because that's the uh, key to monitoring treatments and uh, making sure that you're getting uh, the most benefit from things. So I'll stop there and uh, pass on. Oh, well, thank you so much, Dr. Ramamurthy. That was really excellent and, and very compassionate and very and very informative for everyone. And I, I know there'll be questions for you regarding all these topics, and so thank you so much. Um, and our next speaker is Ms. Diana Bearden, and Ms. Bearden is an oncology dietitian with the Michael E. DeBakey VA Medical Center, and she'll be addressing nutri nutrition and hydration concerns and tips. Thank you so much, Carolyn. I'm excited to be part of today's presentation. Um, so nutrition and hydration are essential. Um, it's how our body functions, um, and it provides the nourishment that we need to do the things we enjoy. So during um, your treatment, you've heard today already that there are uh, potential side effects that can arise based on the disease itself and sometimes even the treatment. So each one of our patients are unique. And um, so we, just keeping in mind that you're unique from the person sitting next to you, um, just like we talked about a little while ago with a person may respond to one drug and the other person may do better with a different dose or a different drug. Um, we need to know how you're doing. So you need to tell us symptoms and challenges that you're experiencing so we can help your needs. Um, so during treatment, your diet might be modified um, based on your side effects. And each one of um, our patients experience side effects to different degrees, and some patients experience them and others don't experience that same side effect. So um, telling us as soon as the side effect arises um, is best so we can get you to feeling better as quickly as possible. Um, we've heard of some of the potential side effects today, but other ones can include dry mouth, um, changes in taste, a decrease in appetite, and maybe an increase in fatigue. Um, so during your treatment, your nutritional goals may change just based on how you are responding to treatment and how your, your, your care is going. So um, meeting with your dietitian can be helpful in understanding what your unique needs are. Um, based on your side effects, it might be bringing in some different foods or giving you suggestions on how best to tolerate intake if, if you're experiencing um, some changes in your baseline. So if you're not able to meet your nutritional goals, and I, I kind of umbrella hydration needs under the same term, nutritional goals, it can really impact the way you feel, your energy level, and it even can delay your treatment if there's um, a decline in your nutritional status. So it's so important to be up on things and talking with your healthcare team. So um, one thing I get from patients all the time is, well, I'm, I'm overweight, I can, you know, I can stand to lose some weight, I'm not really worried about it. And when you're going through treatment for um, cancer, you actually can become malnourished even when you're overweight. So it's not a number that determines nutritional status. It's really um, an overall review of your, your function and how your body is being fed appropriately or inappropriately. So when we lose weight and we're under um, treatment, the thing that is actually compromised initially is going to be your muscle. And um, it's an easy thing for our body to use for energy. So we see a decline in muscle mass um, really first off. And this can really impact your energy, your mobility, um, doing the things you enjoy, so moving around the hospital, it's it's a big place, and there's a lot of walking typically, and so you might notice some changes with that. And so we want to we want to talk with you as soon as possible if you're noticing that you're not getting enough in um, with your diet. We heard a little earlier that there are medications too that can assist with managing some of these side effects, and take your medication as they are 
prescribed. Um, these are different chemicals and um, treatments that you're bringing into your body that you're not used to. And um, the research shows when certain side effects may come up. And so uh, it's important for you to just follow those directions that the healthcare team provides you. Um, Dehydration is not really talked about a lot, but it's very common in the cancer care um, population. And dehydration is very important. It can um, actually emphasize a lot of side effects that are just that are uncomfortable, such as nausea, fatigue, headaches, um, dry mouth, um, dry skin. And so most patients, as a rule of thumb, need about um, about 80 ounces of water or fluid a day, and preferably something that's not caffeinated. Examples of this are water, milk, potentially sports drinks, um, and the fluid intake for you is unique for your size. So that's why I said it's kind of an, an estimate or an average of what folk, most folks need. But getting your healthcare team on board is the way you want to go with, with determining your unique needs. But treatments such as radiation can actually increase your fluid needs. So um, this is something for you to be aware of. In closing, there are several members of the healthcare team dedicated to helping you meet the needs, your, ne your unique needs during your treatment, and please reach out to them. We're here to support you. Um, thank you for allowing me to be part of today's workshop, Carolyn. I'll pass the line back to you. Oh, thank you so much, Ms. Bearden. That was uh, really excellent and very outstanding, and I know there are always questions for you as well in terms of nutrition and, and, and questions that people are always um, interested to hear more about. Um, before we take questions, so I want to kind of let you all know to start getting ready to ask your questions, um, so you'll have a bit of time to do that. Um, I, um, before we start, I just want to say a few words about Cancer Care Services, so you all know about what we offer here at Cancer Care. So Cancer Care is a national organization, and we provide, um, we have a staff of oncology social workers, and we provide a number of different services, and you can take advantage of as many of them as you need. So we offer practical and financial assistance, and that's nationally. We also offer um, help with, um, again, practical issues like home care or child care. Um, we also offer uh, supportive services, so a chance to talk with one of our oncology social workers, either on the telephone or online. Um, you can visit our website or call us at our 800 number. We have a HOPE line of one 800 8134673 and I should mention that all the resources that I mention during the call or any one of us mentioned during the call will be you'll get an evaluation after today's program um you'll probably get it on Monday and that evaluation will also include all the resources we mentioned phone numbers and things like that um so and you may have some of this information already um because you've registered for the program and so you've received some of this already and um, so you have a chance to talk with one of our oncology social workers about any concerns you may have. We do offer both telephone and online support groups, so many people like those. And for people who um, participate um, throughout the United States, uh, those groups can be very helpful depending on your time zone that you're in and, and your sleeping patterns that uh, some people might prefer an online support group, which is a, you can post any time of the day. Um, and uh, for the telephone groups, they occur at a specific time of the day um, um, so that you just would be, have to be aware that that would be convenient for you. And we have groups on every different topic um, on specific types of um, cancer, so like on kidney cancer. We also have groups um, on caregiving or for young adults or for middle-aged adults or for um, young persons who are caregivers um, or older persons. So, um, and partners and spouses, so groups for very different people um, to participate in, um, and LGBT groups. So we really have groups for, for everyone, um, and they're available, and, um, and they're very, people find them very, very helpful um, as well. Um, so we also do offer many of these programs. We offered about 71 workshops like this um, in different topics last year. Um, and we also offer publications so accessible from our website at www.cancercare.org. 
So that gives you a thumbnail sketch of some of what we offer. And I'm now going to ask Norma to explain to all of you how to queue up for questions. And again, we're going to try to take as many of your questions as possible. And if you would bring all of our speakers on board as well, Norma. Thank you. Ladies and gentlemen, if you would like to ask a question, please press star on your touchtone phone. If your question has been answered or you wish to remove yourself from the queue, you may press the pound key. Those of you on the web may submit your questions by clicking Ask a Question. Again, to ask a question, please press star 1. And we have a question in front of our online participants. Um, so I'm going to ask Dr. Masal to start with this question. If someone has a family history of, can of kidney cancer, should they receive any type of screening for kidney cancer? So that is a great question. Um, it all depends on the type of family history. Um, so there are certainly some um, um, situations where kidney cancer is hereditary. So, for example, a common situation is um, in the setting of what we call the VHL syndrome. And that is a syndrome associated with the development of clear cell kidney cancer. In those um, situations, there are specific screening guidelines for both um, afflicted individuals and family members. Um, there are other hereditary syndromes as well. Um, in the absence of any such known syndrome, um, there are no specific guidelines on whether uh, and how often you should receive some kind of screening. And actually, um, screening in such situations may cause much more harm than good. And what do I mean by that? Um, sometimes, you know, if you check um, every one of us with a CAT scan, you will for sure find something. There is no doubt that you'll find something odd. We're all unique. Um, but in the vast majority of cases, that odd finding is completely benign. Um, but once you know about it and it's in your kidney and you have a family history, you have to check it out more deeply. And what uh, I've seen happening is that people get very psychologically stressed by that, which is a problem to begin with, but more importantly, they may end up um, getting interventions like a biopsy that is not benign, can have complications which can cause way more harm than good. Um, the other thing that I wanted to highlight is that certainly um, if, um, a, if the family member had um, kidney cancer and especially specific kidney cancers when he or she was aged 47 years or younger, then that does suggest um, that there may be some kind of hereditary component. But that, even that is not always true. Excellent. Thank you. And Dr. Ramamurthy, do you want to add anything to that? No, I think that that's a, a great uh, description of things uh, in terms of when to uh, consider genetic testing, uh, really it's important to look at the whole family history uh, and talk to the healthcare providers about it and bring it up uh, with uh, a treating medical oncologist to see if uh, uh, it's warranted to go see a genetic counselor. Uh, and as uh, Dr. Massal said, you know, some of the rare forms of uh, subtypes of kidney cancer uh, may have more uh, of an association with some genetic syndromes as well. So uh, just something to keep on the radar. Excellent. Thank you. And a question to you now, Dr. Ramamurthy. Um, what can I do to stay as healthy as possible during my treatment period? General question. Yeah, that is a, that is a great question. Um, a lot of uh, people ask about specific supplements, uh, and in that regard, I, I can't make any uh, clear recommendations because we don't have uh, excellent evidence that one particular nutritional supplement or one specific type of diet is going to help. Uh, but the same sort of things that sort of hold true uh, for uh, your general and overall health are, are important through cancer treatment. So actually uh, exercise uh, in moderation uh, has been shown to really improve uh, ability to tolerate treatments. 
uh, and improve cancer-related or treatment-related fatigue. Uh, and so uh, a brisk walk in the mornings, uh, if that's what you're able to do, is something that is really, really important to try to maintain uh, as uh, much of that activity level as possible. And then uh, from a nutritional perspective, I will defer to um, our, our expert on the line, but uh, trying to maintain your weight um, and uh, enough calories is really important uh, because uh, as your body is fighting cancer, it needs um, as much uh, help as it can get. And so nutrition uh, is, is a key element uh, of this uh, throughout your treatment course. Excellent. Thank you. Um, and actually, uh, Ms. Bearden, do you want to add anything to that as well? Well, I, I think it was said very nicely. Um, the one thing I would add is that um, kind of the old, um, I'm going to say old, kind of in the past, used to be just eat, 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 whatever, you know, and, and families would push like all these cakes and candies and pies and things like that. But as things have evolved and especially um, as we look closer with diet and, and wellness, um, your body will function better if you feed it nourishing um, components. So um, it's okay to have those um, those uh, the items that don't really provide as much nourishment, but it's important to get protein and fiber and phytochemicals and antioxidants from your food. Um, the American um, the American Institute for Cancer Research has a great website, lots of good recipes, free for the public. Um, and getting your nourishment from your food is really the guideline. Um, I, when patients ask me about supplements, I'm, I said there's no need for that um, unless there's a deficiency and, and that shows up. But let's just work on getting it from your diet. So um, fish, chicken, lean beef, um, even using vegetable protein, beans, peas, lentils, quinoa, um, a variety of colors from your plant-based foods. Um, that's really what we want to focus on, and we, we find that our body works better when it's given the nourishment that it needs to function appropriately. Excellent. Thank you. Um, and um, Dr. Massal, um, are there any new screening tests and technology that is able to detect renal cell cancer earlier? No, that's a that's a, a, a wonderful question, and um, the answer, unfortunately, is no. Um, we know that um, many of the um, kidney cancer types, like clear cell kidney cancer, tend to be hard to detect in the blood. So a lot of these tests that, you know, most of them are not even um, clinically applicable in other cancers, but they're certainly not applicable for clear cell kidney cancer. And again, outside of the presence of specific hereditary genetic syndromes where there are clear guidelines, um, there is nothing else right now um, that has proven to cause more benefit than harm um, when we try to do screening. So even for for other cancers, you know, like um, breast cancer, there is debate um, sometimes about how often you should do mammograms, etc. But for kidney cancer, uh, we're not even there. So we don't have um, anything um, for the general population like a colonoscopy for colon cancer or um, a mammogram for, for breast cancer. Okay, thank you. Um, and Dr. Ramarathi, do you want to add anything to that? Or? No, I, uh, unfortunately, we don't have a great screening tool apart from uh, what we do in certain uh, people who are deemed to be at high risk, uh, which would be doing things like ultrasounds or, or MRIs uh, and there isn't really a great uh, deal of evidence as to how frequently to do those types of things. Uh, okay, excellent. Um, and a question for you, Dr. Raman Murthy. Um, does long-term misuse of painkillers increase the risk of renal cell cancer? And then it follows up with at what consumption level do painkillers become a serious risk factor? That is a, a great question. Um, so as the... Uh, expert on renal medullary cancer, I, I would uh, certainly uh, ask Dr. Massal to, to comment on how it uh, potentially can play a role in, in that disease. But 
typically with uh, kidney ca- with uh, the other subforms of kidney cancer, there is not a clear association uh, with uh, uh, over-the-counter or e- or even prescription pain medicines that that I know of. Thank you. Oh, thank you, and Dr. Masal. Do you want to add to that then? Yeah, I I, I agree. I would say that um, anything that can potentially damage the kidney can increase the risk of cancer potentially forming, even just by a little. But I would say, though, that if you are taking um, strong pain medications that can damage the kidney, you probably um, should be much more focused on the immediate um, repercussions of the damage. So if you're taking um, um, like anti-inflammatory drugs like NSAIDs, like ibuprofen, etc., at very, very high doses, then you can directly and immediately damage your kidney function and cause a lot of harm um, that way. Does that increase the risk of down the line developing kidney cancer? Maybe, and maybe by a little, but I would use these pain medications in moderation just because of the immediate downstream effect, which is, um, um, you know, harming the kidneys. Excellent. It's important for everyone. That's very helpful. Thank you. Um, And um, we have another question from one of our online participants who are really um, very active today with with their questions. I thank you all. Um, So... um, So the next question is actually um so this one will be, be for Dr. Raymond Murthy. Um the side effects of neuropathy, um in terms of just dealing with them, um any particular suggestions that um that you're able to make, um and that would be side effects from medication, from treatment. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, neuropathy is definitely a, a challenging uh, side effect that we deal with, usually more so associated with some of the traditional chemotherapies um, that we use uh, that are not too frequently used in kidney cancer but can be uh, seen with some of the treatments that we uh, use in the treatment of kidney cancer as well. Um, so it, if it is related to treatment, uh, then talking to the uh, to your healthcare provider about how that neuropathy is affecting you and how severe it is uh, can help to determine whether the treatment needs to be uh, held for some time, whether there's some dose changes that may need to be made uh, because uh, neuropathy is one of those symptoms that can be progressive and cumulative, so something that can get worse over time if the treatment is continued, and so you want to prevent it from getting very severe. Um, There are medicines that can be used to help with some of the symptoms of neuropathy. Uh, How well those work really depends on the individual person uh, and the neuropathy symptoms that are being experienced. Uh, People have looked at different supplements uh, and their effects on neuropathy, uh, without a lot of uh, success uh, with B vitamins uh, and things like that. Um, uh, there is a lot of uh, data that's coming out now uh, about complementary approaches, things like acupuncture uh, and mindfulness that have actually seemed to show uh, a significant benefit in patients with neuropathy. So some of those uh, complementary and alternative medicine approaches may be uh, something to ask your uh, physicians about as well. Excellent. Thank you. And can you say something about that whole um, the, um, the the a team of, of specialists who sometimes people have a problem with neuropathy or a side effect like that that involves a lot of different issues um, that can help, um, like rehab medicine or um, or just a pain pain team or um, or um, if you could just comment on that a little bit more so people understand that there's a there can be a team of people who can help them with it. Yeah, absolutely. Cancer care can be complex, uh, and so uh, sometimes we have to enlist the help of uh, other specialists uh, uh, when we're experiencing certain complications. And so uh, we work very closely uh, with palliative care specialists who have some expertise in dealing with 
uh, neuropathy, and so those uh, patient, those uh, providers can be uh, a huge uh, uh, benefit to having on your team if you are experiencing something like that. There are interventional pain specialists as well who uh, may be able to help with certain types of pain-related or neuropathy-related symptoms. Um, and uh, as I mentioned, sometimes uh, we enlist the help of uh, people who focus on complementary uh, and alternative types of medicine as well. Excellent. Thank you. Um, um, and then um, for Dr. Masal, um, so how is renal cell cancer most commonly discovered? Um, how, how is it usually discovered? Is it discovered accidentally or with loss of kidney function, or how is it usually diagnosed? Yeah, so that's um, that's a great question. So um, it can sometimes it will present um, with blood in the urine. And so I would say that if you develop blood in your urine, no matter what age you are, it's something that you should take very seriously. So you're not supposed to have blood in the urine. Now, having said that, there can be benign causes um, of having blood in the urine, but that does not mean that we have to assume that it's something benign. So every time you, you have blood in your urine, take it very seriously and go to a doctor and the doctor should um, work it up. And if it's nothing, then that's great. But uh, it might be something um, like cancer behind this. Um, so that's number one. Um, other symptoms that kidney cancer can present with might be pain in the flank area, around the area of the kidney. So that can happen or feeling like you have a mass there. Or sometimes it can even um, present uh, more rarely, but it can certainly happen with losing weight or having fevers that you don't know where they're coming from. Um, so that's when the kidney cancer presents with symptoms, but sometimes um, it has no symptoms at all. It is discovered incidentally. And that on its own sometimes can tell us a little bit about the, the biology of the cancer in the sense that it tells us a little bit about how aggressive it is. So some, um, often, although not always, the ones that are discovered incidentally are often the ones that have not yet invaded enough to start causing blood, etc. Um, both scenarios are, 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 are true, having symptoms or not having symptoms and, and being incidental. And depending on the situation, different um, treatment approaches um, would be appropriate. Excellent. Thank you. Um, and Dr. Um, Murthy, do you want to add anything to that? No, nothing, nothing additional. Okay. Um, and we have um, another question. Um, uh, so this is a question um, for Dr. Emma Murthy. Um, so what is what is there? Is there a role of kidney transplant in kidney cancer with the mandate of being cancer-free for a period of time before transplant? Yeah, that's a, a, a very good question, um, and one that uh, I don't have a, a very clear answer for. Uh, maybe Dr. Masal can can weigh in uh, a bit more. It, uh, is is something that is uh, very dependent on each transplant center, actually. Uh, and so I think the rules for uh, how long somebody needs to be free and also the, the type of donor um, uh, can uh, impact uh, that, that time frame. Thank you. Um, so on, uh, Dr. Masal, do you want to comment on that in a general way? So um, tell me again the question, just to make sure so that I got says, it right. Um, so what is the role of a renal transplant with cancer confined within the body of the kidney with a cancer-free requirement before transplant um, is usually considered? Uh, I see, I see. Um, so, yeah, um, um, as, as Dr. Amartya very correctly said, this is very um, – depended on the type of setting. Um, there are different rules for different countries, etc. Um, usually, um, if you have one kidney, let's say, and that kidney has kidney cancer now, 
um, and it needs to be removed, which will place, unfortunately, the, um, the patient on dialysis, then um, you would want to wait um, for a few years, and um, the number of years depends, again, um, on the country, the institution, the setting, um, to ensure that there is no cancer that will recur before um, a kidney transplant is um, is considered. I hope that, that, that answers that question, but if they need more details, I'll be happy to, 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 to answer more. Excellent, thank you. And so, really, they need to really check with their with the uh, physician and transplant center probably that to find out the the rules of the exactly. Okay, yeah. Um, and we have a telephone question, uh, Norma. Thank you, Sarah B. Your line is open. Please ask your question. Yes, uh, I was diagnosed with uh, a papillary type, um, the the non clear. Um, kidney cancer, and I had surgery in 2017, and I've been followed. It was stage one, and they got it all, thank goodness, and and so now I'm going about a, well, I'm supposed to wait a year for another checkup, so I've had about almost two years of being good, thank goodness, and um at, is there any point, is the five-year point when you can heave a sigh and think you're safe or are you never safe or will it present differently? Because I was one of the ones that had, mine was found accidentally because I had totally, totally uh, symptoms that had, other than the fatigue, I had digestive upset. So I was lucky that I got an ultrasound. My doctor asked for an abdominal ultrasound, and that's how it was found. Um, so I really didn't have typical symptoms. And um, it's just hard ha having it hang over your head, and you're wondering if it would present any differently if for some re if it came back. Oh, thank you. That's really such an excellent question. Thank you. Um... So, Dr. Nassau, do you want to start with that question? Yeah. So, this is um, this is a very good question, and, and it's, it, it helps us highlight a very important concept. So, um, kidney cancer, and particularly clear cell kidney cancer, tends to be um, a little bit different than some of the other cancers. So, there are certain cancers like certain leukemias or certain types of lymphomas that, you know, there are certain thresholds like three years. And after three years, if no evidence of cancer coming back, then you're essentially cancer-free and you can start really using the word, um, I'm cured. Um, with clear cell kidney cancer in particular, um, that um, is a little bit more difficult to say. The longest I have seen um, from somebody, you know, having their kidney removed until the clear cell kidney cancer came back again is 45 years. That's four or five years, so 45. So um, that's a very long time, like almost um, five decades later. Obviously, if that happens, you know, very often that's going to be the least of your worries, but it's, it's, it's how clear cell kidney cancer tends to behave, and I, and I think it's important for individuals to know this um, so that, um, you know, they, they are not completely surprised if something like that happens, um, you know, even 20 years or 15 years from now. Now, having said that, though, time is on the patient's side. What do I mean by that? If the kidney cancer comes back, let's say, 15 years later, that is telling us something about how aggressive it is. And it's essentially telling us that it's not that aggressive of a disease. So that's good news. Even if it comes back, there's a possibility it may never come back. But even if it does, the longer it takes, the better. That's number one with regards to its biology. Number two, as we mentioned before, there are many new therapies that are coming for these kidney cancers, better, less side effects, more, um, and, and better in many ways. So um, the longer it takes for a kidney cancer to come back, the better, because we're going to know much more about how to treat it. The other aspect that I wanted to say is that obviously that creates stress um, in, in, in an individual, um, but at the same time, as I, as I mentioned before, there is a fine balance of how much you want to keep chasing after something that may never happen. 
and it's impossible to say for whom it will happen or not. So very often physicians, um, appropriately, after, let's say, the five-year mark, they say, you know what, the chances of the kidney cancer coming back is almost zero, so... If it presents itself, maybe it will present with certain symptoms, etc. So it's not useful anymore. It exposes patients to unnecessary radiation to do CAT scans um, all the time because the harms now of unnecessary radiation or even financially or logistically are more uh, more than, than, than the benefits. Now, with regards to this particular um, 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 individual who asked the question, I would say um, there, there are certain nuances here. Um, number one, this was not a clear cell kidney cancer, and I don't know the exact histology because there are many different types of papillary. Um, but the fact that this was a stage one to begin with is good news. So it's certainly um, 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 better to, to, to have um, earlier stage disease, and, and it reduces the probability that the cancer is ever going to come back. Now, how high is the probability? It's impossible for me to say because I do not know the specifics of um, her particular cancer, and this would be something for her to discuss with her oncologist. Excellent. And, and Dr. Robert Murphy, do you want to add anything as well before I comment? <laughs> do you... No, I think uh, okay. Dr. Massal put it very well. It's it's nuanced and uh, it, it should be individualized, the uh, surveillance approach um, based on patient factors and the tumor-specific factors. Uh, so uh, with a stage one uh, small papillary kidney cancer, um, I, I think that uh, the risks of recurrence are, are low, um, but uh, uh, following through with surveillance is certainly important. And so I think what we're all saying is it's good to have a conversation with your doctor about these concerns. There are members of the team also that can, this is a very common when people are going back for regular screening and checkups, um, it does cause some degree of concern for those, before those appointments. Usually one's feeling pretty good and then suddenly you're thinking the next day I have this appointment. And, and so I think it's really good to talk to your physician about that. Um, um, I know our staff talk to a lot of people who have these type of concerns. There are ways to help deal with them, just um, behavioral things that one can do that can help you to cope with it. I think that, um, and I think you've gotten some very good information today that um, hopefully you can utilize. Um, and also, I think uh, I think Dr. Masal did say that the thing about time being in your uh, in your benefit is to some extent that, that all these new treatments keep being developed. So the way the world is right now is very different than it might be into the future. And so that's another thing to talk about with your physician to just help you to kind of get all the information you can, so that you can just go on and enjoy your life actually. And um, if that makes sense. Does that make sense to our speakers, or is there a better way to say that? But we just we do know that people do worry about these, um, and, and it occurs with many cancers where people have these annual checkups, and they do cause, a, for many people, a degree of anxiety about those visits. And if we can reframe it somehow so that you can feel that you're doing the right thing by seeing the physician, asking your questions, and sometimes the questions you ask here are very good to take back to your treating healthcare team. Does that make sense, Dr. Masal, Dr. Murthy, and Ms. Bearden? Absolutely. Yes. All right. Okay. Well, I want to thank all of our speakers. You've been phenomenal. It's been a, this has been an amazing program, and we will be offering it again. I can tell you that much. <laughs> These are great speakers, and I also want to thank all of our participants, both the online participants and our telephone participants as well, for asking such great questions, and also for your just being. Um, you know, so really, really, they're very good. All of them were excellent, excellent questions, and questions that are very much questions that are are on every on everyone's mind. And so, um, I, I want to thank you for that. Um, and I do want to remind you that this is a one-hour program, um, and I. Um, and in planning this program, we recognize that you all have many, many needs that go far beyond the scope of one hour. So, I do want to remind all of you that you certainly. Um, for those of you who have um, medical questions, we want you to actually take them to your healthcare team. So after today's program, if you asked a question or heard a question or have another question afterwards, I would definitely, um, you know, discuss it with your healthcare team. We hope you've gathered some information today that allow you to feel more comfortable asking those questions. You've um, you've had a program today in which you can hear the speakers are very eager to address your questions in a way that's helpful to you. Um, 
and I know you also, many of you like to go to, um, you know, uh, you know, recognize places to get information. So we, we very much want you to go to credible websites and things like that. So we do, of course, we are partnering with the Kidney um, Kidney Cancer Canada and Kidney uh, Kidney Cancer Association. Uh, those are both excellent organizations. They have wonderful resources, and you'll be getting that information again in the materials you get from us on Monday. Um, we also. Um, also recommend that people sometimes contact the National Cancer Institute. They have an um, 800 number, but they also have a live chat feature at www.cancer.gov in which you can post a question, and that's good for everybody both um, in the U.S. and internationally. And the information specialists will, will look through their databases and get you an answer that's helpful to you or help you to kind of think through your question. Um, and... Um, and also, for those of you who want to pursue any of the services I mentioned from Cancer Care, you can simply call us at 1-800-813-4673 or visit our website at www.cancercare.org. Um, but most importantly, as we conclude the program today, I would not want any one of you to feel that you're alone in coping with renal cell cancer, any type of cancer. I'd want you to know that you now, um, there are a lot of resources out there for you to tap into um, and free resources to get the support that you need. Um, and that's that's really important. Um, so, um, And I do want to also mention that we do have a program coming up. Um, you'll be getting information about that as well. But it's a five-part series on life with cancer, a guide to getting the best care. And it kind of covers all these broad topics um, about just coping with cancer that you might find useful. So again, I want to thank you for your participation today, and I want to wish you all a very fine day. Thank you all. Ladies and gentlemen, thank you for your participation. This concludes the workshop. You may now disconnect. Everyone have a wonderful day.